what a delight it is we get to hear from David Stockman now. Um, uh, he was elected Michigan congressman in 1976. He joined the Reagan White House in 1981. And while he was budget director there, he's one of the key architects of the Reagan Revolution um, <clears throat> and their plan to reduce taxes cut spending, and shrink the role of the government. So um, <laughs> he left there in 1985 uh, to join Salman Brothers and later became one of the early partners of the Blackstone Group. So we're looking forward to hear from David Stockman. Thank you. Well, thank you. Speaking of the Reagan revolution, it was a plan. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, we ran into a few obstacles along the way, um, quite a few, as a matter of fact. But uh, at the time, it did uh, make a difference. It did stop the momentum of big government and statism and all the rest of it. So it was one of those uh, intervals in history where there were great possibilities. They didn't really materialize. And so I'm here today to tell you, all you hardcore libertarians uh, here, that uh, the time has come for something big to change, and I'm pitching the candidacy of Robert uh, Kennedy Jr. Uh, as, the, as the instrument of that. And of course, Robert Kennedy has supported every single scoundrel that the Democrats have put on their ticket since George McGovern in 1972. Uh, he likes regulation so much that he spent his whole career as a class action lawyer trying to make regulation even tougher and more extensive and the uh, EPA more powerful. He drank uh, such big gulps of the Kool-Aid on uh, the so-called climate uh, change hoax that he actually at one point said uh, that he thought the Green New Deal would be even greater than the original New Deal <laughs> which we all know is not something we would want to emulate. Uh, and so with all of that history, I'm here uh, to tell all of you uh, libertarians <laughs> that Robert Kennedy is our man. Now that is, uh, <laughs> that, that tells you about where we are in the history of this country. Uh, then again, I have to admit that I've always been a contrarian and lately, I've gotten so contrary that besides uh, a few of my private subscribers that I have, there are only four publications left in the whole country uh, that will uh, publish my work. Uh, LouRockwell.com. Lou uh, uh, the Ron Paul Institute. TheAntiWar.com. And The Kennedy Beacon. <laughs> which is the house organ of the super PAC that's been organized uh, to support his uh, candidacy. I mean, I couldn't get a, a, a piece placed in the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg or CNBC or the rest of them uh, to, uh, for the life of me, uh, but the Kennedy Beacon has been publishing my stuff on and off for the last few weeks uh, because somehow issues are coming together in a confluence that I think is uh, totally unique, uh, totally different from our recent decades of history and uh, will make a big difference, I hope, as we go forward. Moreover, that's, really, that's not really the half of it. I have to give I've kind of, uh, full disclosure. I've kind of mentioned it. 
But I have actually been in steady uh, conversation with Robert Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, uh, off and on now for several months as, uh, after he uh, declared his uh, candidacy. And uh, it all started one day when I got a phone call and uh, there was a voice on the other end that said, hi, this is Bobby Kennedy. And I said, what fruitcake is calling me, you know? Uh, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And then I heard the gravelly voice after, uh, you know, 30 seconds or so, and I uh, realized it was him. And uh, he said, well, I just want to say right up front, I've spent three decades denouncing everything you ever did in public life and everything you've ever written, uh, everything that uh, you stand for. Uh, but I've noticed lately that we're coming into substantial agreement on a lot of issues. And I said to him, well, I'm glad to hear that. I want to help. But where have you seen my uh, works? I mean, I only get published in obscure libertarian uh, journals, <laughs> you know, way on the marginal edge of the world. And he said, well, uh, I, uh, I've had your article sent to me by uh, Bill Bonner. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, Bill, if you all know Bill Bonner, he's more of a screaming libertarian than I am. <laughs> and so I'm saying to myself, what is Bobby Kennedy doing talking to Bill Bonner? And it uh, turns out that he was uh, sending uh, uh, Kennedy uh, a lot of things I'm writing on war and peace and the Fed and all the other bad things going on. Uh, but still, it seemed uh, a moment to me to have the son of the first family of big government in America, which goes all the way back to Joe Kennedy, who some, a lot of you know was a new dealer. In fact, uh, he was Roosevelt's uh, big supporter and buddy, and Roosevelt put him as, on, uh, as a head of the SEC on the theory that uh, uh, it'd take a crook to find all the rest of the crooks. And so uh, that's how uh, Joe Kennedy became uh, part of the New Deal and um, head of the SEC. But in any event, why is the scion of this great big government, democratic, uh, multi-generation family wanting to talk uh, with a guy who spent, you know, the last 30 or 40 years denouncing the New Deal, the Great Society, uh, all of the works of the nanny state regulators on issues across the board. And why is he contacting me through another guy who's even a more vociferous opponent of all that stuff than myself, uh, uh, which is to say Bill Bonner? Uh, and so it kind of brought to mind um, a, a ballad I liked back in the 60s. I was a radical in the 60s, anti-war, uh, SDS. I was one of the founders of SDS, actually. I've never admitted that before, but might as well uh, say it among friends. <clears throat> but we had a, uh, there was a great ballad that Bob Dylan put out, uh, and some of you may remember the tune, but it basically went, uh, there's something going on here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? Well, it was Mr. Jones then, but I would say it's Mr. Uniparty today. Uh, in other words, what is happening, I believe, is the Uniparty, finally, the two parties that essentially have uh, constant fights but support on the core, the Fed, the warfare state, massive debt, big government and endless meddling uh, inappropriately in our lives, the Uniparty is finally starting to come unstuck. 
that happened in a big way uh, in the last couple of weeks as the House Republicans threw out a speaker for the first time in I don't remember how many decades, and they can't even seem to find one uh, that they can elect or who will even volunteer for the job now. So they, they're starting to come unstuck. And I think that what can really happen here with the independent candidacy of Robert Kennedy now, especially on the issues that he will be driving, is that we could end up with an election in, uh, that ends up in the House of Representatives because no one gets a majority in the Electoral College. He would only have to win New Hampshire or a couple other states, which I think might be possible, uh, for the first time since uh, uh, 1824. Now, uh, I think there is likely to be a lot of refugees from both parties who are sick and tired of their, their party's role uh, in the Republican wing or the Democratic wing of the Uniparty on some uh, fairly big uh, issues. And we, we kind of have a moment where the candidates, uh, is it seems at the moment, of the two wings of the Uniparty are truly pathetic. Okay, I mean, there's, there's no other way to say it. Uh, Trump is not remotely a Republican or conservative. Um, I'm uh, going to give you a little uh, data on that for a moment, in a moment. And uh, Biden uh, may not be even uh, compost mentis, uh, is, uh, you know, as far as we can tell from uh, day to day. So when you have that set of choices with kind of the mystique and the power of the Kennedy name and then the issues, people are sick and tired of wars, they're sick and tired of inflation, they're sick and tired of Washington uh, games and paralysis that accomplishes nothing, that it might be possible to uh, kind of wean away, chip off uh, from the totals of both parties enough votes uh, to make uh, a real big difference. Now, um, before I give some of the math that I think uh, is involved in that, I do, uh, you know, I have to take my swipe at Donald Trump. I'm sorry. I, Trump, I, uh, Trump has one redeeming virtue. He had all the right enemies, okay? Uh, when you have uh, CNN and the Washington Post and the New York Times... The guy can't be all bad when you have enemies like that. Uh, unfortunately, his policies were really uh, bad, and um, I, I don't even think the full extent of how bad uh, those uh, policies were uh, has yet been uh, you know, fully laid out. So uh, I have just finished. This is where all of this uh, two sides of the political spectrum coming together strangely uh, happens. But I just finished the draft, and it will be out soon, of a book called Trump's War on Capitalism. And basically, I'm trying to expose him as a policy fraud uh, from a you know, free market, conservative, sound money, uh, fiscal... Uh, rectitude point of view. But the only reason I mention it is that my publisher in this case is Skyhorse Publishing, uh, who is uh, the, uh, the owner of Skyhorse Publishing, Tony Lyons, is the chairman of Robert Kennedy's campaign. <laughs> okay. 
And he actually published that great book that Kennedy wrote uh, a year ago on the real uh, uh, Anthony uh, Fauci. And, I mean, that was a blockbuster, that book, and it actually sold millions and millions, and I think is partly responsible for the, you know, uh, the public waking up uh, to the uh, status disaster that was underway during the lockdowns, all of which uh, uh, Trump was wholeheartedly for back then. But in any event, um, not, not to give away all the content or get uh, off the track too far, but I just want to tell you that the facts and the data are overwhelming. And in the book, I go through every kind of measure you might want to look at. Uh, and I put it all, by the way, in constant $2023, so it's all apples to apples. I used wherever I could ratios to the uh, larger economy, GDP, or uh, personal income, other things of that sort, and compared all the presidents going all the way back to Truman. And I'll tell you, when you see the book, on every one of these measures, when you go from good to mediocre to bad, Trump is on the bottom of the list. Or if you like to talk about uh, excess growth of things, uh, he's on the top when it comes to, to uh, total spending, when it comes to increase in the debt, when it comes to the deficits as a size of GDP, and especially when it comes to a monetary policy. There, has, there, was, there has never been, as far as I can tell, an interest rate that was low enough in Donald Trump's estimation. It was terrible what he did during the period where there was at least a slight chance that the Fed might uh, attempt to retreat from the nonsense that Bernanke uh, unleashed in 209 through 212. But as they tried to shrink their balance sheet and get interest rates back to normal, he was on their case constantly, uh, you know, uh, really uh, in a way that we haven't seen in uh, decades. And uh, how can you have a Republican president uh, asking for the Fed to print money like there's no tomorrow? But the uh, data that comes out of the book, uh, just to hit it uh, quickly, that really struck home to me. I've got all the presidents listed, or, and I put Kennedy Johnson together and, uh, you know, Nixon Ford, and so it's all uh, pretty fair. But what uh, really struck, uh, stood out to me was the comparisons between the Trump uh, period and Jimmy Carter. And the reason I m mention this is that I sort of cut my eye teeth as a congressman, fighting tooth and nail against the Carter energy program, the Carter budgets, the Carter uh, macroeconomics programs, and uh, so forth. And as far as we uh, felt back in those early days of the 1980, uh, Carter was the worst. Uh, big spender, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, here's just a, a taste of it. I want to give you a, a couple of uh, the metrics in here to give you some idea. Well, one thing I looked at was constant dollar spending growth per year for each administration back to Truman. In uh, Trump's case, it was $365 billion, uh, same dollars now. In uh, Carter's case, it was $70 billion. So that was like six to one. And these are constant $20, $23, so it's not playing with inflation. Uh, when it came to spending growth, 7% a year uh, in real terms under Trump, 3.5% under Carter. 
when it comes to the deficit as a share of GDP, it's one good metric about how far off the deep end we are. Trump's deficits average 9% of GDP. Uh, Jimmy Carter, the big spender, the big borrower, the guy who's ruining the country, uh, uh, his deficits average 2.3% of GDP. And when it comes to the ultimate problem here, our national debt, which is really ultimately sinking the economy, Trump added an average of two uh, trillion a year. Uh, Jimmy Carter, and these are constant dollars again. I'm not uh, playing with inflation. Added a hundred billion, so uh, that's twenty times. And you can go through uh, this. Uh, there's a lot more where that came from. Uh, and then that's just the fiscal, the monetary. I've mentioned the lockdowns were a horrendous attack on the Constitution, on economic sanity. Um, you know, they it can't be forgiven for that reason alone. Uh, he shouldn't be uh, the nominee. And uh, the trade protectionism, you know, the, it was so primitive uh, and uh, unhinged. Uh, the uh, border uh, walls, uh, we need uh, immigrant workers. We should have a uh, guest worker program. It should be orderly and organized, but uh, we shouldn't be building walls, etc. So if you put all that together... Uh, it adds up uh, to something that isn't really an alternative. So the question is, um, if we're heading towards in, um, you know, uh, in 19 or in 2024, something that looks like 1824, uh, you know, why am I saying that and is that possible? Well, uh, there's plenty of votes to peel off from both wings of the Uniparty, but let's just think of what happened in recent times. You know, Ross Perot got 19% of the vote uh, in 1992, and TR, Teddy Roosevelt, going back to 1912, got 28%. If you put it in today's uh, size, today's context, that would amount to 35, that range would amount to 35 to 50 million votes in a 2024 election that um, we can expect about 170 million voters. Now, that would be a message. That's the first point. That would be a thundering message. The second thing is, you know, the way the 12th Amendment is written, if someone doesn't get a 270 electoral votes, it goes to the House of Representatives. And in the House of Representatives, uh, they vote by state, not by numbers or not by, you know, a proxy for U.S. population. And that's where I would like to see this end up, in the House of Representatives. There would be a hell of a battle. And we would finally have a chance to get on the table all of the issues that are now being swept under the rug by the Uniparty and its uh, uh, pretension that it's actually uh, competing with each other. Now, why is Robert Kennedy the man to do this? Well, if some of you remember your history, uh, you might uh, recall that John Quincy Adams won, the, the, uh, became president in 1824 um, in, the, in the House of Representatives, even though he didn't have uh, the largest number of electoral votes. And... and he basically uh, famously said something which is the heart of the issue that we're confronting with today, I think. And that was, remember he said, uh, America should be a friend to all, an ally to none, and it should never go abroad 
in search of monsters to destroy. That's the essence of the current foreign policy of the United States. That's the essence of what the Uniparty in Washington is all about. They're constantly looking for monsters to destroy. The latest one, of course, is, well, forget about the events of the last week, but before that uh, it was obvi obviously Putin, who uh, got uh, demonized uh, because uh, the mainstream media said that Hillary Clinton lost the election in 2016 due to Putin, uh, Putin's little minions uh, sending messages out on Facebook. I mean, that is really one of the stupider uh, uh, things that have come down the pike in terms of our uh, political discourse in this country. But the thing is, that Trump derangement syndrome that came out of that is the reason why the Democratic Party, which used to be the peace wing, uh, the peace party, is now uh, you know, dominated by neocons and uh, war hawks and uh, you know, servants of the military industrial complex. And when the Democrats are on board and the Republicans are uh, more or less uh, dominated by the neocons, uh, you have a pretty bad situation. Now, uh, I can't emphasize enough how um, out of control the warfare state is. And by the warfare state, I mean not just the DOD budget, but all the international security assistance, State Department operations, uh, National Endowment for Democracy, the international broadcasting uh, operations, which are really uh, propaganda operations. You put all that together, and today it amounts to $1.3 trillion. That's what's embedded in the budget today. And if you put that uh, in context of history, I think I can give you a pretty easy example that tells you how far off the deep end we've come. In 1961, when Eisenhower gave his famous farewell address, he, uh, you know, he was confronting the Soviet Union that still had some industrial vigor. Uh, it still had 50,000 tanks on the Central Front. It still had uh, thousands of uh, nuclear warheads uh, pointed in our direction. So it was a perilous time in the world, but Eisenhower said even then his final budget uh, of $50 billion was more than enough to provide for the security and safety of the United States. Well, that's, those do that's dollars of those days, but if you put it in today's dollars, that amounts uh, to $400 billion. And if you put um, the rest of it in uh, for the veterans and international security assistance and so forth, it's 500. So in today's dollars, Eisenhower said, we are secure, we are safe, we are doing what we need to do with 500 billion. And these clowns in Washington today in the Uniparty say the 1.3 trillion that's already in the budget isn't enough and uh, they're having uh, these uh, rearguard uh, fights uh, constantly for even more. Now, the point about this is not simply that that's way too much, it's like some kind of huge economic waste, which it is. The point about this is that it is a very insidious, corrupt system. When you have $1.3 trillion flowing into the economy, into the beltway, uh, into the uh, think tanks, into the NGOs, 
into the military-industrial complex uh, contractors, it creates an enormous force for self-perpetuation. Uh, I call it the self-licking ice cream cone. In other words, uh, you, you don't even have to ask what uh, the policy choices are for this m monster national security establishment because it's already paid for its next budget in the form of all the loose change. When you're spending 1.3 trillion, uh, uh, far, far in excess that anything that's, uh, that's even a, uh, remotely rational, there's dollars you know, dropping everywhere that are being spent basically to create the case uh, for perpetuation and for uh, continuing even more. And so what you have then is a system that uh, is self-perpetuating and that brings to the top in both parties people who, uh, you know, for ideological reasons or philosophical reasons or psychological demented reasons <laughs> uh, think uh, that our job is to rule the world. Our job is to be the hegemon. Our job is to be the gendarme uh, of the uh, world uh, uh, e economy and uh, political system. And so you get people like Lindsey Graham, who's nuts. I mean, he's, he's just plain a, a screaming madman. Uh, or Tom Cotton or McConnell the other day. You know, he said the most important priority we have today when they were having their last phony uh, uh, crisis over uh, the continuing resolution. The very most important thing we're doing today is Ukraine. Well, I mean, has the guy ever looked at history? Has he ever looked at the map? Does he understand that in Russian, Ukraine means borderlands? Does he understand that that whole territory for hundreds and hundreds of years was either a vassal or part of uh, the greater Russia? that the country is divided between uh, Ukrainian nationalists and Poles in the West and Russian speakers and Russian identifiers in the Donbass in the South, what was called Novorossiya, and that they don't want to be together. This was a state not built to last. There was no borders of Ukraine until 1922 when Lenin said, oh, we're going to put Novorossiya into Ukraine as a matter of, uh, you know, administrative convenience. And then Stalin came along and they were busting up uh, Poland during World War II. And he said, we'll grab, uh, you know, the, the territories of the West around Lviv and uh, make that part of Ukraine. And then uh, the big one that I like is uh, Khrushchev came along, big fight for the succession after Stalin died. Uh, he got some important support from the Politburo members uh, from Ukraine. So he said, okay, your door prize uh, is you get Crimea. So we're supposed to have a, a World War III to help the Ukrainian uh, government get back uh, Crimea that's 89% Russian and has never been part of the Ukraine anyway throughout history except the Presidium in 1954 went along with Khrushchev in his, uh, you know, political uh, uh, process. So that's uh, kind of what's built up in the culture. And you have all of these leaders of both parties. If you look at them, I remember when I really, truly was, I didn't make this up, when I was in SDS, we looked to all those great uh, doves in the Democratic Party uh, uh, from Fulbright and Church and all the rest of them uh, as leaders of the peace movement 
And now you can't find one, including Bernie Sanders. If he had asked him about, uh, you know, they ask him about uh, Ukraine and he uh, double talks and ducks and run a, runs away. So that's how bad this whole thing has become. Now, the second uh, par uh, reason why it's so bad, uh, and by that I mean the warfare state, the consensus uh, uh, in favor of uh, searching the globe for monsters to destroy uh, the consensus, uh, the neocon consensus uh, that we're the hegemon of the world, is that it creates a mighty log-rolling process that is destroying this country fiscally. And I, I'll give you a couple of uh, uh, points, data points about that before I finish. But uh, there was an event in recent years that I think tells you uh, how bad this really is. Now, the, the, the heart of the fiscal problem, of course, is the entitlement, Social Security, Medicare, and all the rest. And the Republicans have become total chickens on that. In fact, they're even now saying, you know, we're not even going to touch it. That's the Donald Trump line. We don't touch Medicare. We don't touch uh, Social Security. Well, if you look at a 10-year budget horizon, which is uh, how they commonly look at it, uh, total spending uh, projected is 80 trillion, 34 trillion of that is Medicare and Social Security. And they're giving it a pass. And they want more defense, and they have to pay the interest, and they have to pay for the veterans that they put into the position that they're in, uh, disabled or uh, needing uh, government compensation. And yet, uh, they're going to give a complete pass to Social Security and Medicare, including and even uh, not even talking about means testing when the fact is there's a huge transfer element, transfer payment element in that uh, that uh, people didn't earn in their payroll taxes and shouldn't be getting now because we can't afford it. Anyway, they do nothing about that, but you would think in this one little 15% corner of the budget that you hear about all the time uh, called um, uh, non-defense discretionary spending. And this is, you know, things like the education department, uh, uh, community development grants, uh, housing subsidies of one type or another. Um, you would think at least there the Republicans would go to town to try to pay for some of their massive defense spending uh, by uh, reallocating some dollars. Well, here are the facts. In 2017, this is l the last uh, uh, Obama budget, uh, 27, fiscal 2017, uh, we spent $610 billion in non-defense discretionary. In 2021, the last Trump budget, we spent $900 billion in non-defense discretionary. In other words, it went up 48% in the very part of the budget where these uh, Republican fiscal chicken littles should have at least uh, taken a swipe, given the fact that they controlled the veto pen during that period, and given the fact that they controlled one or both houses of Congress during that period of time. So if you want a confession, a de facto confession written in uh, budgetary ink, look at that. During that four-year period, with all the leverage that you could imagine, they ended up raising that part of the budget that half of them say they're not for anyway by nearly 50%. And why did they do that? Because that was the trade-off with the Democrats uh, and the uh, domestically oriented people uh, to get these massive defense budgets. Now, uh, the fiscal uh, situation as a result of this dynamic, and obviously there's a lot more to it, 
But the fiscal situation has gotten so bad that I didn't, you know, I was going to bring a bunch of charts for this screen here today. But it has gotten so bad that I don't think uh, a chart is going to, you know, uh, do the job anymore. It's not, uh, you know, everybody's jaundiced from seeing this. It goes up and up and up and up, and uh, somehow uh, nothing is done. But I've come up with a few numbers riffs, which I think uh, you, you can almost remember. You can almost memorize that in a very uh, succinct and powerful way tells you how bad this has gone. My first riff uh, is 1 trillion, 33 trillion, 55 trillion, 100 trillion. So 1, 33, 55, 100. What is that? When I became budget director, the first fight we had was to try to prevent the public debt from going over 1 trillion. And we were petrified that that was going to happen. It was almost like... Are we going to turn into a pillar of salt? <laughs> you know, if, uh, if the public debt goes over $1 trillion. That was then, 1981. Today, it's $33 trillion in the bank. It's happened. It's being serviced, $33.5 trillion. Uh, the $52 trillion number is what CBO says at the end of the current 10-year horizon, the public debt will be. And that's based on Rosie's scenario. They say for 10 years, no, no recessions. Uh, for 10 years, nothing goes wrong in the economy. For the next 10 years, the average weighted average cost of interest on this towering public debt will be 3%. Do you believe that? Because today, short uh, treasury bills are 5%. Today, 10-year uh, uh, in the 30-year is 45 to 5 so where are they coming up with three? If, in other words, if you reprice this for all kinds of things we won't go into here, uh, for the real world, uh, you know, it's going to be far more than $55 bill, uh, trillion baked into the cake by early in the next decade. And the $100 trillion is where I'm certain we'll be long before the turn of the century. So what you can say is we've gone to one to 100, from one to 100 in less than 70 years. Now that tells you... Uh, in, you know, in some very uh, graphic way, uh, how far out of control this is, but that's where we're heading, unless we have some kind of huge breakdown of this uniparty uh, system. Um, another uh, example that I think indicates how seriously uh, out of control this is, is, um, you know, and, and the Fed, of course, is the enabler of all of this. If they hadn't monetized trillions and trillions of debt, uh, we wouldn't be nearly, uh, I don't think we'd be nearly in the soup that we're in today. But here, here's, here's what happened in the last two decades. If you go back to 2007, right before uh, the financial crisis, the public uh, uh, debt was about uh, $5 trillion. If you go to 19, late 19, uh, 2019, right before the COVID uh, crisis, the public uh, uh, debt was uh, $17 trillion. And notwithstanding uh, almost tripling of the public debt during that period, the weighted average cost of uh, yield, interest, on the public debt from 30-day you know, bills to 30-year uh, bonds was 2.5%. Now, does that sound like the real world? <laughs> it doesn't sound like the real world to me. That was the Fed world. That was uh, interest rates that were steered, pegged 
forced lower by the massive uh, bond buying of the Fed. But my real point is this. After 2019, when we went into this crazy lockdown COVID mania, uh, $6 trillion worth of uh, relief uh, spending, um, at the end of that period, uh, we had actually spent uh, $9 trillion. Uh, we had added to the debt, I'm sorry, $9 trillion. And guess where interest rates went as we added $9 trillion to the public debt? Instead of going way up, which is what the market would normally do when supply and demand intersect in that way, uh, interest rates by uh, March 2022, right before the Fed finally pivoted and said we're going to got a little inflation problem here, interest rates on average on the Treasury debt, the whole damn thing, were 1.5%. Now, how in the world do you ever expect that politicians are going to do anything about the public debt or about the size of deficits when the cost of carry is 1.5%, which is totally, you know, uh, unreal world, not sustainable, uh, a violation of every uh, economic principle there is. So uh, that's, uh, you know, a, a part of a dimension of the problem but uh, I want to uh, give one other number, which I think is uh, quite uh, striking, and that is uh, we just closed the books on fiscal 23, uh, 2023 a few uh, days ago, and it turns out that the deficit came in roughly at $2 trillion if you take out some of the Mickey Mouse in the numbers, and that that was the culmination of a four-year period. Now I'm talking about fiscal 20, 21, 22, 23. Four years in which $9 trillion was added to the public debt in those four years. Two and a half from Trump, one and a half from Biden. But $9 trillion in four years. Now how do you even, that actually adds up to $6.5 billion of red ink every day. If anybody's got their hand calculator, it's 2.4 million of red ink every minute for four years running, weekdays, Sundays, holidays, snow days, all the rest of it. And to put it in historical perspective, the question I had as I was writing the other day is, well, how long did it take us to get the first 9 billion, or 9 trillion, I'm sorry, if we got another $9 trillion in this four-year period at a rate of $6.5 billion a day? The answer is it took us 220 years from uh, the uh, opening of the U.S. government. It took 43 presidents to get us to $9 trillion of public debt in July 2007. And here we are now adding $9 trillion in four years, and it's actually getting worse uh, as we look uh, into the future. So then the question is, who, who was the enabler of this? The answer is the Fed. Um, we were talking before um, that uh, Milton Friedman, uh, for all his uh, genius and all of his correct views about free markets and the price system and a lot of things, was dead wrong about money, okay, um, but if, uh, you know, and he 
basically paved the way for uh, Bernanke to do what he did in 207, 208, because it was all based on Friedman's view of what happened in 1930, 31, 32, uh, none of which was accurate. But in any, way, in any case, even if you give Milton Friedman the benefit of the doubt, he said, well, the money supply should not grow more per year on average over time than the growth capacity of the economy. Well, that happens to be, let's just say 3% to take an arbitrary number. I think most people would say that's not bad. Well, if we go back uh, to the time that uh, Greenspan, and he's the great enabler, became Fed chairman, the balance sheet of the Fed was $250 billion. It had taken, uh, you know, from 2013 uh, to get there, $250 billion. Had they grown that balance sheet, which is really a measure of the money, the printing press, you know, how much uh, Fed credit is being produced, had they grown that at even Milton Friedman's uh, rule of thumb, the balance sheet of the Fed today would be $800 billion, not $8 trillion. So they overshot the mark by 10x. In fact, when they were at the peak at $9 trillion, they overshot the mark by $8 trillion. Now, what happened? Well, it flooded into the world market. It forced all the other central banks of the world to print money, uh, or otherwise their currencies were going to appreciate too much for their uh, mercantilist uh, view of the world. And so the foreign central banks all became Keynesian money printers, just like the Greenspan Bank here. And that uh, basically uh, got us uh, to the huge mess in the world that uh, we have today. So the question is, um, I, I would say that right now we're, uh, we're at a uh, juncture, we're at a tipping point, we're at an inflection point. Um, and there is what I call a high noon agenda. What really needs to happen? And the first thing is, uh, if this uh, scenario I've been painting about the 2024 election happens, the first thing is we need to revive, and this is one of the things I've been talking to Kennedy about a lot, the idea of a Fortress America defense budget and policy, which happens to resonate because old Joe Kennedy was an advocate for Fortress America, and the real articula articulator of Fortress America was Robert Taft, Senator, great Mr. Republican Senator Taft, even in the 50s, the height of the Cold War, he said, we protect the mainland, we use the great Pacific and Atlantic Ocean moats uh, to uh, secure uh, uh, our uh, territory, and we don't get ourselves involved in becoming the global hegemon and bases all over the world and alliances and so forth. That was the Fortress America idea. And it turns out, I didn't even realize this, that when John Kennedy wrote his famous book, uh, Profiles and Courage, some of you have probably come across it over the years or know about it, one of the eight profiles in courage was Robert Taft in John Kennedy's book. So I find this pretty interesting because I've talked to Bobby Kennedy a lot about putting together a defense budget based on Fortress America that could actually save a half trillion a year, that could cut this 1.3 trillion back to 800 billion, or the defense per se proper 900 billion back to 400 billion by getting out of the business that we're in today, uh, the global hegemon business. 
who needs 11 carrier uh, aircraft carrier strike groups if you're protecting the shores of the United States? You don't need carriers. They're sitting ducks anyway. The carriers will cost $1 trillion, the 11 carrier battle groups with all their escort ships, their suite of planes and electronics and all the rest of it, uh, will cost $1 trillion or over the next decade or $100 billion a year. You could dispense with most of that. The Army's budget is $2 trillion over the next decade, $200 billion a year. You could cut it by two-thirds if you're protecting the shores and the coast uh, and the North American continent and not uh, mucking around in the Middle East and everywhere else in the Far East that we are in today. So that's the first point. The second point is that you could then couple that with a $500 billion savings in the domestic budgets by going back to the principles of federalism. And believe it or not, even someone like Bobby Kennedy is now beginning to realize that when you pile everything on the wagon and you make uh, centralize everything and you make Washington, uh, put Washington in charge of one size fits all for everything in terms of our domestic economic uh, process uh, and governance, you're, you're asking eventually to so overtax the system that you end up with paralysis, failure, <laughs> the fact that we can't even elect a Speaker of the House for the first time in our history. So you could put that uh, $500 billion on the defense side, $500 billion on the domestic side, add another $500 billion because the automatic savings of the interest on this massive debt, and you could work your way to fiscal uh, a balance to fiscal sustainability uh, by the end of the decade. That's something that could happen. That's something that will take a candidate who says enough of the forever wars, enough of the warfare state, enough of the global policemen. We're going to come back and protect uh, Fortress America only. Now, um, the second thing we need to do, and this is, again, where uh, I've been able to engage uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy, is he doesn't like the fact that Wall Street has made such massive gains and the top 1% has made such enormous uh, asset gains, uh, asset value gains, since Greenspan took over. And so we were talking the other day, and I... I gave him these numbers, and he was even shocked. If you take the top 1% of the households, they had $4 trillion in net worth in 1987. They have $44 trillion in net worth today. So there's been a $40 trillion gain over a period when the GDP only doubled. So how do you get 11x gain in the value of securities in net worth when the GDP uh, doubles or maybe triples during that period? You don't unless you have a central bank that's drastically, continuously, and artificially inflating uh, the price of financial assets. On the other hand, if you take the bottom 50%, they had a net worth of $300 billion, uh, in 1987. It's only $2, billion, uh, $2 trillion today. So one side gained less than $2 trillion, the other gained $40 trillion, the 1%, the 50%. He doesn't like that. I'm trying to convince him the Fed, the Fed, the Fed uh, is the source of it. And uh, I think he's open to that possibility where the mainstream Republicans, uh, you know, they're, they're all on board and they don't even, uh, you know, uh, think about uh, these monetary issues. Uh, so that's another opening. So if you can get 
And of course, he was very strong and very firm on the COVID uh, lockdowns, the mandatory uh, uh, you know, vaccinations and all of that. He's understanding because he has been censored and canceled to, by the whole media, the, the whole danger of, uh, to free speech, constitutional liberty. So if you put constitutional liberty, the, uh, the Fed problem, the fiscal problem, uh, the warfare state uh, problem, uh, together you can get a program that actually um, would make sense and that could be supported by the third party candidate who's in the business of blowing up the system. It can't come soon enough. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.